welcome, welcome, welcome. Test one, two, are we on? Hello? Old trick from radio. How are you? Thanks for joining me on the Urantia Radio podcast. In a moment, we're going to talk about paper 137, and it's a period of, of Jesus' life where there's a lot told in one particular section that I personally want to share so many different insights. It's an, an interesting thing to read during these interesting times. And also coming up is a very interesting webinar, which I'll tell you about here on the Urantia Radio podcast. So I'm very excited to be uh, welcoming in our next podcast, which will be coming up later this week with uh, Gaitlin Charlin, Gaitlin Charlin, the Governor Committee of the Urantia Association. He has a webinar that is coming up, and it is all about the impact of the Lucifer Rebellion and his way of thinking, the Revelation, and us. And it is going to be presented by Gaiden Charlin, longtime Urantia book student, major, major influencer uh, at the Urantia Association International. And the event is going to be held on November 19th, 2022. It's right around the corner. And it's 12 p.m. Eastern. So if you're in the United States or Canada, uh, just note the time will be 12 p.m. Eastern. Uh, And then if you're in L.A. or the West Coast, Arizona, or L.A., 9 a.m., Arizona, 10 a.m., and then all over the rest of the world, 12 p.m. in Colombia and Peru, 2 p.m. Anyway, if you want to find out more information, go to the Urantia Association website. And you should be able to get plenty of information. Or you can go to my website, urantiaradio.net, and I'll link it to you. Uh, it's easy to find on my menu bar. Just look for, I believe it's the uh, events uh, tab on urantiaradio.net. So I uh, over the weekend, I was feeling a little blue. I don't know about anything particular. Is it really about anything in particular? What, one thing I've learned in my short life on Earth is oftentimes... As the Master has told us, uh, much of our problems are imaginary and self-inflicted. And it put me in a mood, and I thought this would be a good time. When you're in those moods, when you're feeling bad, you're feeling anxious about things and you don't know why, the best time is to go and look at the, the way that Jesus lived and just open up the book and read about one of his teachings. So I, I opened up the book to paper 137. Section 7, and it was the period of time, and, I, and I'll just give a, a brief preface, then I'll read it to you, or some of it, and then we'll talk about it. And it's that period as the apostles are being trained. The apostles now have been with Jesus for four months. They're going through training. Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom. And let me read, and then we'll extrapolate. There's some incredibly interesting insights to be gained from just this one short paper. So let me read. For four long months, March, April, May, and June, the tarrying time continued. Jesus held over 100 long and earnest, though cheerful and joyous sessions with these over there, six associates and his own brother James. Owing to sickness in the family, Jude was not able to attend many of these classes. James, Jesus' brother, did not lose faith in him. But during these months of delay and inaction, Mary nearly despaired of her son, her faith raised 
to such heights at Cana. That's where they had the wine ceremony that we all know about. Uh, it sunk to new low levels. She could only fall back on her so oft repeated exclamation, quote, I cannot understand him. I cannot figure out what it all means. But James' wife did much better to bolster Mary's courage. Throughout these four months, these seven believers, uh, one his own brother in the flesh, were getting acquainted with Jesus. They were getting used to the idea of living with this God-man. Though they called him rabbi, they were learning not to be afraid of him. Jesus possessed that matchless grace of personality which enabled him to uh, so to live among them that they were not dismayed by his divinity. They found it really easy to be friends with God, God incarnate in the likeness of mortal flesh. This time of waiting severely tested the entire group of believers. Nothing, absolutely nothing, miraculous happened. Dur day by day they went about their ordinary work, while night after night they sat at Jesus' feet and they were held together by his matchless personality and by the gracious words which he spoke to them, evening upon evening. Boy, what a wonderful experience that would be, right? To sit at the master's feet and, and listen to him. This is the creator son of the universe in, in flesh and blood, freely teaching these mortals of that time all that he could teach. And Jesus would talk to them. The period of waiting and teaching was especially hard on Simon Peter. He repeatedly sought to persuade Jesus to launch forth with the preaching of the kingdom in Galilee, while John continued to preach in Judea. But Jesus' reply to Peter ever was, Be patient, Simon. Make progress. We shall be none too ready when the Father calls. And Andrew would calm Peter now and then with his more seasoned and philosophic counsel. Uh, Andrew was tremendously impressed with the human uh, naturalness of Jesus. He never grew weary of contemplating how one could be living so near to God and be so friendly and considerate of men. Throughout this entire period, Jesus spoke in the synagogue, but just twice. By the end of these many weeks of waiting, the reports about his baptism and the wine of Cana had begun to quiet down. And Jesus saw to it that no more apparent miracles happened during this time. But even though they lived so quietly at Bethsaida, reports of the strange doings of Jesus had been carried to Herod Antipas, who in turn sent spies to ascertain what he was about. But Herod was more concerned about the preachings of John he decided not to molest Jesus, whose work continued along so quietly at Capernaum. In this time of, of waiting, Jesus endeavored to teach his associates what their attitude should be toward the various religious groups and the political parties of Palestine. Jesus' words always were, quote, We are seeking to win all of them, but we are not of any of them. The scribes and rabbis taken together were called Pharisees. They referred to themselves as the associates. In many ways, they were the progressive group among the Jews, having adopted many teachings not, fairly, uh, not clearly found in the Hebrew scriptures, such as the belief in the resurrection of the dead 
a doctrine only mentioned by a later prophet, Daniel. The Sadducees consisted of the priesthood and certain wealthy Jews. They were not so much sticklers for the details of law enforcement. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were really religious parties rather than sects. The Essenes were a true religious sect, originating during the Maccabean Revolt, whose requirements were in some respects more exacting than those of the Pharisees. They had adopted many Persian beliefs and practices, lived as a brotherhood in monasteries, refrained from marriage, and had all things in common. They specialized in teaching about angels. The Zealots were a group of intense Jewish patriots. They advocated that any and all methods were justified in the struggle to escape the bondage of the Roman yoke. The Herodians were a purely political party that advocated emancipation from the direct Roman rule by a restoration of the Herodian dynasty. In the very midst of Palestine there lived the Samaritans, with whom the Jews had no dealings, notwithstanding that they held many views similar to the Jewish teachings. All of these parties and sects, including the smaller Nazarite Brotherhood, believed in the sometime coming of the Messiah. They all looked for a national deliverer, but Jesus was very positive in making it clear that he and his disciples would not become allied to any of these schools of thought or practice. The Son of Man was to be neither a Nazarite nor an Essene. While Jesus later directed that the apostles should go forth as John had preaching the gospel and instructing believers, he laid emphasis on the proclamation of the good tidings of the kingdom of heaven. He unfailingly impressed upon his associates that they must show forth love, compassion, and sympathy. He early taught his followers that the kingdom of heaven was, was a spiritual experience having to do with the enthronement of God in the hearts of men. And as they tarried before embarking on their active public preaching, Jesus and the seven spent two evenings each week at the synagogue in the study of the Hebrew Scriptures. In later years, after seasons of intense public work, the apostles looked back upon these four months as the most precious and profitable of all their associations with the Master. Jesus taught these men all they could assimilate. He did not make the mistake of overteaching them. He did not precipitate confusion by the presentation of truth too far beyond their capacity to comprehend. So, you know, the time of, of no miracles, the time where we rest, the time that we make ourselves ready to do God's work, I think this is that time and Jesus use that time to prepare these men. Just as sometimes I think in, in our own lives when we get fidgety and we feel compelled to do something. Because our world today is not really that much different. You know, you think of all the different political parties, the religious groups of that day and age. They're telling this, I think, to sort of give us a reference that it's not that unlike what we have today. You have all the political things that are going on. You have different uh, groups, ideologies that are all clamoring to win dominance, ideological dominance. And here we are sitting uh, with the greatest gift that you could possibly have, the life and teachings of this, this wonderful man, 
this God-man Jesus, right? And he's with these men, and he's trying to teach them. And they're ready. They're, they think they're ready to go out and take on the world. They think, you know, we've got truth now. We can go out and we can conquer. And Jesus is teaching them, you know, you've got to kind of calm down a little bit. What we're, what we're, what we're going to be teaching them is important, but it's also, it takes time to, to actually experience it ourselves so that when we, we become better teachers, not to be in a hurry. So what happens next is very interesting to me, and it really stuck with me. And I want to read a little bit. I don't know. Maybe I'll read all of it. But on Sabbath, June 22nd, shortly before they went out on their first preaching tour, and about 10 days after John's imprisonment, you might remember when Jesus heard that John was imprisoned, and that's when he put down his tools and said, it's time to go to work. My father's hour has come. So all this training is going on, and then we lead ourselves up to this point in middle of summer or the beginning of summer, and and Jesus decides that he's going to uh, speak for the first time. It's sort of his opening act. Jesus did his last work at the carpenter bench on Tuesday, June 18th. Peter rushed out of the shop and by mid-afternoon had rounded up all of his associates and leaving them in a grove by the, by the shore. He went in quest of Jesus but he could not find him, for the master had gone to a different grove to pray. And they did not see him until late that evening when he returned to the Zebedee house and asked for food. The next day he sent his brother James to ask for the privilege of speaking in the synagogue the coming Sabbath day. So Jesus puts down his tools. He goes and spends time in prayer with the Father. He comes back. Tells his brother, can you go ask the, what do they call the rabbi, if I could speak this Saturday, I've got something important to say. And this is where Jesus is giving his first real sermon. Now, I don't know how many people were there. It doesn't say specifically. But there's two parts of his sermon. The first is he draws from scripture and then he gives his own personal message. And so, but I would suggest maybe there's a hundred, maybe two hundred people, because of, at this time the curiosity of Jesus was really starting to gather momentum. And even though this was in a highly populated area relative, relative to today, where you have hundreds of thousands of people living there, it's easy to see that maybe a few hundred probably watched this first speech of the Creator's Son as a mortal man giving his first public speech. Uh, as a, as the new teacher, think of the the importance, the historical or the spiritually historical importance of this moment. On this moment that he first begins his public speaking and public teaching. And before Jesus preached this memorable sermon on the kingdom of God, the first pretentious effort of his public career, he read from the scripture these passages. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy people. Yahweh is our judge. Yahweh is our lawgiver. Yahweh is our king. He will save us. Yahweh is my king and my God. He is a great king over the, all the earth. Loving kindness is upon Israel in this kingdom. Blessed be the glory of the Lord, for he is our king. So he reads this excerpt from 
what we would know now today as the Old Testament. And this is something familiar to the people that are at the synagogue. This is part of what would probably be even considered a normal instruction where the rabbi picks a selection. And let me continue on, because now he's going to go into his, his speech. And when he finished reading, Jesus said, quote, I have come to procl- uh, proclaim the establishment of the Father's kingdom, and this kingdom shall include the worshiping souls of Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, free and bond. For my Father is no respecter of persons. His love and his mercy are over all. The Father in heaven sends his Spirit to indwell the minds of men. And when I shall have finished my work on earth, likewise shall the Spirit of truth be poured out upon all flesh. And the Spirit of my Father and the Spirit of truth shall establish you in the coming kingdom of spiritual understanding and divine righteousness. My kingdom is not of this world. The Son of Man will not lead forth armies in battle for the establishment of a throne of power or a kingdom of worldly glory. When my kingdom shall have come, you shall know the Son of Man as the Prince of Peace, the revelation of the everlasting Father. The children of this world fight for the establishment and enlargement of the kingdoms of this world. But my disciples shall enter the kingdom of heaven by their moral decisions and by their spirit victories. And when they once enter therein, they shall find joy, righteousness, and eternal life. Those who first seek to enter the kingdom, thus beginning to strive for a nobility of character like that of my Father, shall presently possess all else that is needful. But I say to you in all sincerity, Unless you seek entrance into the kingdom with the faith and trusting dependence of a little child, you shall in no wise gain admission. Be not deceived by those who come saying, Here is the kingdom or there is the kingdom, for my Father's kingdom concerns not things visible and material. And this kingdom is even now among you. For where the Spirit of God teaches and leads the soul of man There in reality is the kingdom of heaven. And this kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. John did indeed baptize you in token of repentance and for the remission of your sins. But when you enter the heavenly kingdom, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on and continues. And this kingdom which I declare to you is not a reign of power and plenty. The kingdom of heaven is not a matter of meat and drink, but rather a life of progressive righteousness and increasing joy in the perfecting service of my Father who is in heaven. For has not the Father said of his children of the world, it is my will they should eventually be perfect, even as I am perfect. Entrance into the Father's kingdom waits not upon marching armies, upon overturned kingdoms of this world, nor upon the breaking of captive yokes. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and all who enter therein shall find abundant liberty and joyous salvation. And he goes on quite a long time. I mean, he spent probably close to 15 minutes in teaching these people for the first time. They're hearing the first time uh, unique words. 
When he had thus spoken, he sat down. All who heard him were astonished at his words. His disciples marveled. But the people were not prepared to receive the good news from the lips of the God-man. About one-third who heard him believed the message, even though they could not fully comprehend it. About one-third prepared in their hearts to reject such a purely spiritual concept of the expected kingdom. Of the expected kingdom. While the remaining one-third could not grasp his teachings, many truly believing that he was beside himself. And so there you have it, right? That that therein lie, therein lies the central issue, at least for me, the thing that jumped out. Because having read the Urantia book and having read the life and teachings of Jesus, those words, even to this day, it's the core of Jesus's message. What he spoke on that first day, that that's his message. That was the message he was going to go out and share with the world, turn the world upside down. But even then, as it is today, think about it. Out of the hundred or so people that were there, only one-third, one-third even barely appreciated or even understood what he was saying. And you think we've made all this great spiritual progress over the past 2,000 years? Well, you can look around you and you can see that that is hardly self-evident. But what you can see, can see and this is, I'm not sure if this is good news or bad news, but it's reality. Even today, there, and I'm not sure where I read this. Maybe it was that uh, Desmond novel that I read that I referred to um, where he talks about how people tend to be followers. And in any, in any, any given group, you're going to have a percentage of people who are truly innovative, you know, maybe 20, 30%. Then you have another group that just kind of follows the crowd at lunchtime. And then you have the other group that isn't quite sure, but they'll follow whatever they think the majority will believe in. And this makes up humanity. This is the way humanity seems to have always been. You have a small percentage of people who truly do look for the truth and truly do want to know what's happening. And then you have the majority, the 70% or the 66% who just don't get it. They don't even try to get it. And they just live as if everything has always been this way. And they don't have a goal. They don't have a, a eternal vision of what they're working for. They're just, they just get up in the morning. They're almost like robots. And even in Jesus' day, it was, there you go. Some people heard it and said, wow, what a great message. But most of them said, what is he talking about? And I don't think it's that much different. And that's when I realized that I, stop, I need to stop being disappointed that so many people refuse to see the light of truth. In my life or in your life or in our circles of influence, it truly is a remarkable thing that so few people really desire to, to seek for the truth. And here is this Creator's son, his big day, his launch pad, the beginning of his campaign that would stretch three years and end in his death and later resurrection. And on that first day, even he was willing to stand up knowing 
that not that many people were going to get his message, but he did it anyway. And he tried to give them something that they could, op- it could open their doors so that they could see that the kingdom of heaven was right here. Wasn't over there. Wasn't over there. It isn't with this group. It isn't with that faction or that ideology. It's in here. It's in your heart. Had a conversation once with an associate. We were talking about religion. And they said, you know, what is God anyway? He's, he's out there. I, he's too big for me. And I wanted to say, no, he's actually inside of you. And, uh, But it, it's a great passage, and it really kind of jumped out at me. And I can't wait to continue. And we will continue. We're going to cut it here, and uh, I wanted to share that paper. Again, it's paper 137, section 7. It's a great read. Paper 137 and it is, it is in itself a great read. So until next time, we don't forget now we have two episodes. We have one episode where we go over a paper, and then we have another episode during the week where we talk about particular topics or interviews. And we have a great interview coming up again uh, here in a couple of days, later in the week, check back. And that will be with uh, Gaitlin Charlotte, who is doing a presentation on Zoom on November 19th about the Luciferian impact on society, the revelation, and us. So go to the Urantia Association website or my website, urantiaradio.net. Until next time, God bless, be safe, and thank you for stopping by.